to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared and thus unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear and Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner for this episode is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. In this episode, Mark and K.J. discuss how Robert Dabney and C.S. Lewis maintain their faith in the midst of profound suffering, and then turn to consider what Psalm 90 can teach us about life's frailties caused by human sin. Let's listen in. Well, in our last episode, Mark, we saw how profound suffering made it almost excruciatingly difficult for even a great theologian like Robert Dabney to maintain his Christian life. As you put it, quote, profound suffering as a form of elemental and persistently painful feeling impacts us directly and immediately, dominating our minds and thus overwhelming our awareness of anything else. Its horror can almost compel us to ask, how can the Christian story be true when life includes something like this? And yet Dabney, he did maintain his faith in spite of losing three sons to diphtheria. So this reminds me of a couple statements uh, that we talked offline between episodes about faith that Lewis made. He said faith is, and I'm quoting here, the power of continuing to believe what we once honestly thought to be true until cogent reasons for honestly changing our minds are brought before us. Or put even more simply, faith is, as he states elsewhere, the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Yes, that's, that's right, KJ. And it's important to notice that Dabney was able to practice that art that Lewis is talking about by reminding himself that, as he put it, the feeling that surely God must be our enemy, mm, yeah. since he's permitted us and our loved ones to suffer so horrendously, is all too, uh, all too apt to arise even for Christians under great sorrows. That's important that he recognizes this is something that's likely to happen even to Christians. Yet, he went on, it was in refutation of this feeling that God is our enemy that the Apostle Peter wrote to tell the Christians who were suffering in his day that their suffering shouldn't surprise them as though something strange were happening. For Peter would remind us, Dabney wrote, that for God's own children to suffer, even though it be severely, is no novel thing. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. In particular, he said, the road of bereavement is one along which all the Bible saints traveled. Yet, yet they got home safely and so may we. Oh, it's a good reminder. 
Well, back to Lewis, we see in his classic, A Grief Observed, that he struggled mightily to maintain his faith after the death of his wife, Joy. His faith instructed him to believe that he, she not simply ceased to exist, yet he found him he found himself asking the following, and here's an extended quote from, from that, uh, that book. Can I honestly say that I believe she is now anything? The vast majority of people I meet, say, at work would certainly think she's not. What do I really think? I have always been able to pray for the other dead, and I still do with some confidence, but when I try to pray for her, I halt. I have a ghastly sense of unreality, of speaking into a vacuum of non, about a non-entity. The reason for the difference is only too plain. You never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth, truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. Only a real risk tests the reality of a belief. Apparently, the faith I thought it faith, which enables me to pray for the other dead, has seemed strong only because I have never really cared, not desperately, whether they existed or not. Yet I thought I did. That's, that's an important quotation, especially when Lewis mentions that the vast majority of people that he's around at places like work would think she has simply ceased to be. Yeah. And it sounds an awfully lot like the loss of assurance that struck Dabney when his eldest son, Bobby, died 23 days after the death of his second son, Jimmy. And even more, as we listened uh, to the words that came from Dabney's diary last time, even more so mm -hmm. after the death of his fourth son, Tom, a few years later. So, in fact, here I think what we're doing is we're seeing a pattern that may afflict Christians under certain circumstances involving profound suffering. But, in fact, it's at a point like this that Lewis tackled his doubts head on. He noted that he was immersed in, and again, I'm quoting from A Grief Observed, feelings and feelings and feelings. And he says, let me try thinking instead. Hmm. And here's where those two statements you quoted from Lewis K.J. about faith are crucial. For he asks, from the rational point of view, what new factor has Joy's death introduced into the problem of the universe? What grounds has it given me for doubting all that I believe? I knew already that these things and worse happen daily. I would have said that I had taken them into account. I had been warned, I had warned myself not to reckon on worldly happiness. We were even promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accepted it. I've got nothing he said, that I hadn't bargained for. Yet, he continues, yet it's different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in imagination. He explains that our bid for God or no God, as he puts it, for a good God or the cosmic sadist, for eternal life or non-entity, will not be serious if nothing much is staked on it. And you will never discover, he says, how serious it was until the stakes are raised horribly high, until you find that you're playing not for counters or for sixpences, but for every penny you have in the world. 
He continues, nothing less than these horribly high stakes will shake a man, or at any rate a man like me, out of merely verbal thinking Mm. and his merely notional beliefs. We have to be knocked silly, he says, before we come to our senses. And then he adds, only torture. And in fact, isn't that exactly what profound suffering is? What Dabney experienced in a really deep degree with the death of his fourth son, Tom. Only torture, Lewis writes, will bring out the truth. Only under torture, under profound suffering, do we discover the truth of what we really believe. Yeah, wow. Lewis really uh, knows how to make a point quite well, doesn't he? He does. Um, by my lights, uh, these lines of thinking frame our experiences of suffering from a top-down perspective. But I, I've got to say, it can be tough to overcome those, as he says, feelings and feelings and feelings, because they can be... They can be so overwhelming, Mark, that they suffocate us. Uh, what he talks about, you know, praying for the dead, that's exactly the way I felt about when my brother died. It all of a sudden became very real to me. So do you think you could say a little bit more about this, about, how, about, about the feelings side of things versus the rational nature? Especially, I'm thinking here, not when we're not the ones suffering, but we're trying to comfort someone who is. Of course. When I'm called to suffer alongside someone who's suffering profoundly, I find Dabney's and Lewis's struggles to maintain their faith remind me not to offer trite answers in the face of profound suffering. It helps me to realize that even a great apologist like Lewis wasn't able to stand back from his grief and ask if it were reasonable for him to continue to believe until about halfway through a grief observed. You have to get into the third chapter before he can stand back a little. At first, the first chapter, his grief mostly just disoriented him. Hmm. He said it felt like being dazed or drunk or concussed. He felt buffered from direct contact with reality. A little later, more or less the second chapter, he couldn't do much more than yell. As I observed near the beginning of When the Stars Disappear, most of us have thought very little about what we should say or do when we encounter profound suffering. I then asked in that book, does profound suffering have phases that make different responses appropriate at different times? Does intense grief have an early phase when we shouldn't say much and the best we can do is pray that God will help his grieving children keep their faith. Both Lewis and Dabney went through phases when their grief overwhelmed their Christian hopes. I find Lewis's reasoning in the last two chapters of A Grief Observed, KJ, to be very helpful. He articulates his own reasons for continuing to believe the Christian claims that he had previously thought to be true, in spite of the almost overwhelmingly negative swing of his moods that followed on his wife's death. But I find Dabney's appeal to the road of bereavement, along which all the Bible saints traveled, 
I find that even more helpful. For Dabney regains his perspective by reminding himself of what scripture itself has to say about profound Mm -hmm. suffering. Lewis acknowledges that Christianity hasn't sold us a bill of goods concerning suffering, but if I'm right, he never cites any scriptures in a grief observed that emphasize the suffering of God's saints. Dabney, in contrasts, in contrast, cites and quotes biblical passages that explicitly acknowledge that we Christians will suffer. Oh, that, that's a good point. I like Lewis as well, but uh, I found Dabney to be uh, profoundly helpful as well. Um, but looking at both of them, these are really good ways to help us remain oriented in what I call turbulent times. And we talked about this in, an, in a previous episode, and I kind of alluded to um, my time as a pilot and my ways and thinking as a pilot actually lends itself very well to your, your nautical, nautical metaphor. Uh, you see, Mark, as a pilot, there's what we call different rules or different conditions in which we might, we might find ourselves flying. Uh, for example, I could fly visually or I could fly with the aid of instruments. We call that VFR or IFR, flying with visual or instrument flight rules. And on a nice day, I can fly without the aid of instruments because it's really nice outside, and I can fly by what we call the seat of the pants. Um, my feelings and my sense of intuition are are reliable, and with a strong sense of confidence, I can trust what I'm feeling. I can sense whether the aircraft is in a turn or decelerating or anything like that, but it's when I'm flying at night or in the clouds that I lose all my reference points and I need help because these conditions make my feelings untrustworthy or less than trustworthy. So I need to use instruments in those conditions or those situations to a much greater greater degree, and I might even have to fly using only my instruments. If I'm flying at night and in the clouds, I have nothing to look at, so I need just my instruments. So the way I've thought about this is that during turbulent times in life, I have to rely on those fixed objective resources rather than on my feelings. So to tie these together, in flight, those would be my instruments. In life, those are the promises and character of God. I have to rely on those. And so I like how you draw Dabney and tying it into scripture. Lewis makes a strong argument but I want to tie them into the promises and characters of God. And I'm going to find that in scripture. Right. And I mean, I think Lewis knows this. He just doesn't come out and say it because in a letter in 1959, he's writing to uh, his correspondent and he wrote exactly this. Has he not promised comfort to those who mourn? You just alluded to that yourself. So indeed he has. And Christ says this himself, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So I don't think Lewis is getting away from scripture. He doesn't cite it. And well, you know, going back to my question about helping those who are suffering, this may be of only limited use in comforting others, but what I found is these reminders have been really helpful in my own profound grief. Because as you alluded to a minute ago, and, and Lewis says, when my brother died, the first question I asked myself when everybody cleared the room and I sat there was, well, it wasn't a question, it was a statement, God, you better be real. <laughs> right. Stakes were high. Right. So does, all, does all that make sense? It does. And in fact, your allusion to the conditions in which a pilot can trust his senses and when he can't is, I think, really helpful, KJ. When profound suffering makes the stars disappear to our sight, we need to navigate 
by hearing God's words in Scripture. What I want to do now is I want to look at a couple more biblical passages that describe some of the sorts of suffering that may be in store for us. Good. And in fact, here I think we have to turn back to the Old Testament, because while the New Testament makes clear that we will suffer, it covers such a short period of human history so concisely that it doesn't have time to record specific instances of suffering in detail. But in fact, especially Psalm 90 and Ecclesiastes have the time to do that. Psalm 90 is a community lament that was written from an intense awareness of mortality and sin, perhaps after some great Israelite trial such as the 40 years of wilderness wandering when a whole generation of sinful Israelites died off. Verses 3, 5, and 6 echo God's verdict regarding Adam in Genesis 3.19. Here's what they say. You return humanity to dust. God returns us to dust and say, return, O children of Adam. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. Hmm. Now, let me just mention that the ESV has a marginal note, that the words of this verdict can be translated, as I've translated them, as return, O children of Adam, rather than, as the ESV has in the main text, as return, O children of men. And in fact, most versions render the Hebrew as return, O children of men. But I think that that rendering obscures the point. We return to dust because of Adam and Eve's sin. As we'll see, that same Hebrew phrase is repeated several times in Ecclesiastes, where I'll render it again as children of Adam. Hmm. So whatever had happened, the Israelites had been stripped of any illusions about who they were. They were now vividly aware of being Adam's children, subject like him to God's death sentence. That made their lives, they could see now, as unsubstantial as dreams and as transient as grass. Verses 7 through 10 of Psalm 90 explain why their lives were so brief. Here are those verses. For we are brought to an end by your, by God's anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Now, no matter what may have happened to the Israelites, many of us can resonate with those verses, especially I think in the latter parts of our lives as we start to get a bit older. Those verses remind us, Klaus Westermann wrote, of the frailty of human life and the fact that it is the result 
of divine action. The frailty of human life is the result of divine action. Our transitoriness, Westerman says, is the outcome of God's anger, his reaction against human iniquity. It's obvious, he says, that behind these verses, these verses in Psalm 90, lies the primeval story of man's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And so he says, so he concludes, in the background of these verses in Genesis 3 lies the awareness which he says all human beings have, lies the awareness of the necessary connection between guilt and punishment. Now, these Israelites understood that even though they were God's people, their days were passing away under his righteous wrath until they would finally fritter out like a sigh. They knew that the constancy an inevitability of God's wrath against sin meant that even if they lived unusually long lives, the best of their years would be but toil and trouble that would quickly pass. And then, as verse 10 puts it, they would fly away. That, I, that's good. I'm, I'm diving into Ecclesiastes right now, coincidentally, so I'm going to be keeping this in mind. But I, I've got to play devil's advocate here for a minute. Uh, maybe that's why you have me here, but... <laughs> doesn't doesn't the fact that our Lord is now borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, as Isaiah declares, doesn't that mean God's no longer angry with us? That because of our Lord's death um, and his atonement through that death for our sins, doesn't mean he no longer punishes us for it? We need to make a distinction here between kinds of suffering, KJ. Okay. The fact that Jesus has borne or paid for our sins— as Peter puts it in his first letter, means that we are no longer subject to God's retribution, hmm. to his requiring us to pay for our sins. Right. Because Jesus has borne our sins, we no longer, at the final judgment, have to face eternal punishment as just recompense for our sins. But, but not all suffering is retributory. Okay. Some of it is as the author of the letter of Hebrews puts it, disciplinary. God designs the suffering of his children not to harm them, but to do them good. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. In this life, Everyone still suffers, although for Christians, it's for our good. As the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 wrote, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I know, O oh Lord, that in faithfulness mm. you have afflicted me. Wonderful verses. Those are good. And in fact, the affliction that God brings upon us includes the afflictions that we all inevitably suffer in one degree or another because of God's wrath against sin. 
So, so the Israelite sense of mortality and sin in Psalm 90 is something we Christians may also feel. In fact, something that I tend to think we all should at times feel. It led them, as I think it should lead us, it led them to pray that God would teach them to number their days so that they would grow in wisdom. And it led them to understand and to pray that in spite of life's ups and downs, that God would nevertheless satisfy them each morning with his unfailing love, and that he would make them glad for as many days as he had afflicted them for as many years as they had seen trouble. Ultimately, of course, God will do this for his children in the eschaton when he brings about the consummation of all things. It will be especially then that the final words of Psalm 90 will be fulfilled. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Hmm. I find as I grow older, KJ, that remembering Psalm 90 reminds me that until our Lord returns, we will always labor under the consequences of sin. Hmm. Yet especially when I'm confronted with the shortness and hardness of life, I find myself nowadays looking forward to our Lord's return when every tear will be wiped from our eyes and death will be no more. We're venturing into the stark reality of of the Christian life here, aren't we? We're we're definitely not talking about living your your best life now. Um, Before we wrap up, in summary, what you're saying here is that not all suffering is punishment but some of it is disciplinary and much of suffering is the result of the fall and the fact we live in a fallen and sinful world. Now, this to me makes good biblical sense, but it I'll tell you, Mark, it can be hard not to hold a karma-like view of suffering because I, I think we seem to be hardwired to assume that hard times come upon us because we did something wrong or someone's out to get us. So maybe we could explore that a little bit more in our next episode. Uh, that that sounds really good, KJ. In fact, we'll do exactly that as we think through one of the claims found in Ecclesiastes, yeah. which is that time and chance happens to us all. Mm, that's good. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that the author has seen both the righteous suffer what the wicked ought to suffer and the wicked get the goods that the righteous ought to get. And so Ecclesiastes is making clear that this karma-like view doesn't always hold. Mm. Now, we've covered a lot of ground today. Next time, we'll look at Ecclesiastes and how it relates, in fact, back to Genesis 3. We'll see you next time, Mark. Deep suffering often leaves us feeling disoriented and disconnected from reality but it's only under profound suffering that we discover the truth about what we truly believe. And as C.S. Lewis and Robert Dabney remind us, when suffering makes the stars disappear, we need to navigate by hearing God's words in scripture. 
There we see that not all suffering is punishment. Some of it is disciplinary, and much of it is the result of living in a fallen world. Yet we can hold fast to God's promises, including the one found in Romans 8, which tells us that God designs the suffering of His children not to harm them, but to do them good. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and KJ thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.